I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling the sacrifice of himself. How many of you would agree with me that if your two eyes were removed from your eye sockets, that you'd have a vision problem? I mean, does that make sense? I mean, it wouldn't matter if they were gouged out or they were surgically removed. You'd have a vision problem. Imagine with me for a moment that a doctor was to take my two eyeballs out and lay them on the table in front of me. And then he took my two eyes and he rotated them so that those baby blues were facing directly toward me. I can promise you two things without equivocation. Those eyes wouldn't see me, and I wouldn't see those eyes. <laughs> you say, why? Because my eyes would be in a kingdom that they weren't created to live in. My eyes would be in a kingdom that they weren't designed to operate from. I mean, common sense alone would tell you that your eyes cannot function independently from your body. And one of the greatest struggles that believers and unbelievers are facing today is the problem with two eyes. Oh, I'm not talking about the eyes that are below your forehead. I'm talking about the eyes of identity and inheritance. Those are the two eyes that they struggle with. And when those two eyes are removed, then people cannot see the gracious heart of the Father. <laughs> They're like a two-year-old with a coloring book in crayons. They're just all over the place. Coloring outside of the lines. And did you ever notice how they just make everything one color? The shirt is purple. The face is purple. And they think that is beautiful. And so many people walk through life and they color God with one color. And they have missed out on the fact that he is a cornucopia of beauty. A cornucopia of colors. You say, Mark, do adult believers and unbelievers do this? Yes, they do it. They pick up the old covenant crayon and color in a new covenant coloring book. When people cannot see the eternal goodness of God, it's because they do not have singleness of mind. When people cannot see the unceasing graces of God, it's because they do not have singleness of mind. When people cannot see the unconditional love of the Father, it's just simply because they do not have singleness of mind. The scriptures tell us, I am the Lord, I change not. If our Father is good to us, and He's gracious to us, and He's kind to us, and He's generous to us on Sunday, then He'll be just as good, just as kind, just as forgiving, just as gracious, just as loving to us on Monday on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday, on Saturday. He'll be just as good. Remember, I am the Lord. I change not. If our Father is good to us 
and loving to us and gracious to us when we are standing on the tallest mountain in life, then he'll be just as gracious and he'll be just as kind and he'll be just as present when we are in the lowest valley of life. Listen to me carefully. Even if it's a valley of your own making, he'll be there for us. Now that's important to know because the world will give you a different message when you find yourself in the lowest valley, the one that you made for yourself. You know what they'll say? Well, you made your bed, now lie in it. How many of you have heard that before? David had a revelation of God's grace, even under an old covenant. David had a revelation of God's mercy. David had a revelation of God's presence. And David had a revelation of God's light. In Psalm chapter 139, verses 8 through 11, we find these words. He said, if I ascend up into the heaven, look what David said, thou art there. He said, if I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Do you see the same message? Those words, thou art there. David used two extremes. He said, listen, I want to go as high as I can go because there's nothing above the heavens. He said, I'm going to go as high as I can go. And he said, if I go there in my heart, in my mind, physically, it doesn't matter. He said, you know what I find? You're there. He said, but if I make my bed in hell, I don't know where that place is at. Could be in the center of the earth. It could be any place. I don't know where it's at. But you know what he does? He uses two extremes. He said, the highest place, heaven, the lowest place, hell. He said, no matter what happens, he said, if I ascend to the heavens, he said, you are there. He said, if I make my bed in hell, he said, thou art there. He says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. That's comforting to know, isn't it? That no matter where we're at, you could feel like you're on an open sea somewhere. You could feel like you're on Gilligan's Island. I'm telling you, the Father will be there for you. Thou art there. Gilligan's Island has got to be better than hell. Of course, it was hell for them. He said, if I say surely, I love this part. He said, if I say surely the darkness shall cover me, look what he says. Even the night shall be light about me. He said, I'm not going to pay attention to darkness Darkness has no hold on me. Darkness is like light when Jesus is there, when God is there, when his presence is there, when in his presence there's not only fullness of joy, there's always light. God is the God of light. He's not the God of darkness. He says, even in the night shall be light about me. He's reminiscing through these scriptures on, about the attributes of God. And he's naming some of them. He's saying, God, I find mercy. God, I find grace in you. I find your presence. And even in my darkest moment, I find your light. Comforting. Oh, if I would have heard these scriptures so many years ago, when I wallowed in condemnation, when I wallowed in fear. Oh, I heard the scriptures I didn't hear him explain with a gracious heart. Many people cannot see the eternal attributes of the Father 
Listen to me carefully. You're not going to get a newsflash here. It's not nothing I'm, I haven't said before. They cannot see the eternal goodness of the Father because they have mixed the old covenant, the darkness of the old covenant with the light of the new covenant, and it has caused double vision or another way to say it, it's caused double-mindedness. Even James talks about that. He talks about a man that's double-minded. He said, you can't trust your emotions. You can't trust anything. When you become double-minded, you're here one moment, you're there another. You're saying yes and amen to something one moment. You're saying that's not true the next moment. You cannot trust those emotions. When you mix Moses with Jesus, you end up and you create a Molotov cocktail. I know we've seen a number of those in the news recently, and we understand those are destructive bottle bombs, they call them, you know. But when you mix Moses with Jesus, you create a Molotov cocktail, and you try to serve it to someone and say, here, have some of this. When you do that, when you mix Moses with Jesus, you make light of the cross and have created a mindset where there is no longer a distinctness. There is no longer a oneness. There is no longer a secureness. When you mix Moses with Jesus, friends, I'm going to tell you something. It's like eating salsa and chips. How many of you know every time you do that, it's going to be running down the front of you. You're going to make a mess. Every time. I don't care how careful you are. The cross is where the sacrifice of himself took place. July 4th of 1776 was a great day. It's the day that we commemorate our independence from the rule of Great Britain. But our freedom did not begin on July 4th of 1776. The cross of Christ is where our freedom began. I'll tell you two things that are more powerful to me than independence. They are identity and inheritance. Those are more powerful to me than independence. You see, how many of you have heard the old saying, you can take the boy out of the jungle, but you can't take the jungle out of the boy. You ever heard that? In other words, what I'm saying is you can take away my independence, but you cannot take away my identity. You cannot take away my inheritance. I know exactly who I am in Christ. I know exactly what he's got planned for me. It's good things. It's things the Bible says that the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, the mind has not conceived. The Bible says, of the things that he's prepared for those that love him. How did my identity and inheritance come? Did these two gifts come through my own wisdom? Did they come through my own eloquence? <laughs> no, sir. No, ma'am. They came through the power of the sacrifice of himself on the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17, we find these words. For Christ did not send me to baptize. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He didn't send me to baptize. What did he send me to do then? Preach the gospel. What's the gospel? The good news. The Apostle Paul says it's the gospel of grace. He calls it the gospel of his dear son. He calls it the gospel of peace. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence. There you go. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, if you think for a second, you're going to contribute your wisdom and your eloquence to your salvation. He says, you have emptied the power of the cross. It's either the cross plus nothing or it's nothing at all. The power is in the cross. The power is in the resurrected Christ. 
Friends, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus was greater than a fireworks display. He was more than that. He was more than a Big Bang Theory. The sacrifice of himself allowed us to become, listen to me carefully, the very house that he would come and live in. Now, I've lived in enough places in my life, probably more than all of you put together, we moved like crazy. And I understand every home that I ever lived in had a front door and a back door. Not only for convenience, but for an emergency exit. But the house that Jesus created on the inside of us doesn't need an escape hatch. It doesn't need an emergency exit. It doesn't need an egress window. Our homes have no need of a back door of Moses. It needs but one door, Jesus Christ. And according to John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the door. We don't need more than one door on this house. Jesus comes through one door and seals us until the day of redemption. Isn't that beautiful? In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, we find this truth. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. I want you to pause and meditate on what just got said there. Jesus has been found of greater honor than Moses. Now, why would he pick Moses? Moses wasn't the first man. Why didn't he pick Abraham? Why didn't he pick Adam? Why would you single out Moses? Because he's trying to draw our attention to the law. Because Moses represents the law. He says, Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus is greater than Moses. There would be no reason to single him out like that. He's greater than Moses. And then he says, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. I don't think sometimes we think about it, but when we see a beautiful piece of artwork hanging on the wall and we ooh and ah over the beauty of that painting and we don't stop to really consider that an artist painted that. We give all the credit to look at how beautiful that painting is, but the artist is greater than the painting. That's what he's saying right here. The artist is greater than the artwork. You drive by somebody's home that's got a yard that, I mean, is absolutely manicured. I mean, the grass is all cut within a sixteenth of an inch of the one next to it. It's been fertilized. It's been weeded. Everything's been done. And we think, wow, that looks awesome. Green plush. But we don't stop to think that somebody had to pay a price for that because your grass won't stay that way. Come on, can I talk to some homeowners in here for a second? Can I just talk to some renters for a second? Your grass won't stay that way. You just quit fertilizing it one time. But I'm so happy that his blood was the richest fertilizer in the world and one application of his blood took away my weeds forever made me beautiful in his eyes forever. One application of his blood. That's the power of his blood. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses 
was faithful as a servant. Notice how it says those words. Moses was faithful as a servant. Look at those three words, as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. Look at these words though, friends. But Christ, remember what the conjunction but means? It means we've moved on. It means this is not as important, but it says, but Christ is faithful, not as the servant. Notice it says Christ is faithful as the son. Moses was a servant. Christ is the son. A can be one of millions and billions and trillions. The means one. The one and only. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. I love these words. Look at them. It says, and we are his house. Did you ever stop to think of it that way? We're God's house. He lives on the inside of us. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, all of them live right on the inside of us. We're his house. I don't think we think about that enough. That he's living on the inside of me. He never leaves. He never says, I'm going to the grocery store. I'll be right back. He never says, I've got an appointment. I'll see you tonight. No, wherever we go, he goes. Remember what David said? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. That's because you're in me. So wherever I go, he goes. You can't get away from him. He says, we are his house. And I'm going to say one other thing here, that Jesus is faithful to protect his house. He's the best security in the world. He is faithful to protect his house. He cares about his house. He loves his house. He cherishes his house. Not a, a home that's made with wood and sticks and straw, whatever it may be, but I'm talking about you, one made with flesh and bones. He loves his house. So let me ask you a question. The obvious question, how did we become God's house? We became his house, his dwelling place, if you will, by placing our faith in Christ. That's how we became his house. Amen. The grace of Christ leaves no provision for us to demand anything. Think about what I just said. We have no rights to demand anything. We're under grace. Grace does not demand. Grace supplies our every need. We don't have to demand anything. So even as we're praying, sometimes we have to catch ourselves saying, God, do this. God, do that. God, almost like we're commanding and demanding him. We don't have to do that, friends. We just agree with his heart. His heart is to save every rioter. His heart is to save every wicked person. Just agree with that. That's what grace looks like. Grace never demands. Grace always supplies our every need. Let me tell you what else grace does, and that is it imparts identity and inheritance. I don't believe you can fully understand your identity and your inheritance apart from grace. I'm talking about that continue working ability of His grace. When you understand that, it imparts an identity. It imparts an inheritance. Grace corrects double vision and gives us singleness of mind. 
That is one of the things I've noticed it's done for me over the years. It's taken away my double vision. It's taken away the double way I used to think about things. It corrects our vision, takes away our blurry vision, our fuzzy vision, and gives us singleness of mind. Grace takes the hammer out of the hand of Moses and allows Christ to be our builder. That's what grace does. Grace doesn't come along and demand Moses to give him the hammer. No, grace says, I've got a better way. I've got a better way. Grace takes the hammer out of the hand of Moses and allows Christ to be our builder. Remember, Christ was raised in a carpenter's shop. He's a wonderful builder. Grace does not make us feel inferior when we're in the valley. It does not shun us. It does not condemn us. It does not belittle us. It does not make us feel inferior in the valley. Only the grace of Christ can create an atmosphere on the inside of us of sonship and peace and light. Only grace can do that to make me feel as though I'm a son. Make me feel full of peace. Make me feel full of light. We see an amazing truth in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and verse 23. Look at these words. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? What in the world is Jesus saying here? Do you imagine when this would have rolled off his tongue, that would have just tripped them all up. They're like, what, what are you saying? He's using the eye figuratively here in these scriptures to symbolize the mind's eye, the heart, if you will, not our physical eye, okay? If we could just look with the eye of our heart and see that what Jesus did on the cross was as finished of a work as we know it to be, the finished work of grace, then we will have singleness of eye, singleness of purpose, singleness of mind, darkness and confusion will have to flee. Even the night shall be light about us. When believers insist on operating through the principles from the kingdom that houses the shadows of the old covenant, then they will see with double vision. Hey, friends, you got to move. You got to move your mind out of that old abandoned house. Remember the house that was made obsolete. Why would you want to live in an obsolete house? It has no currency. They will see God is gracious and forgiving with one eye and not the other. They will walk in darkness, a kingdom that has no ability to see that through the sacrifice of himself, he brought us eternal redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We see that truth in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Look what it says. I just love these scriptures. It says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Another way to say that, he has rescued us from double vision. He has rescued us from darkness. He has rescued us from confusion. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. The kingdom, friends, that's full of light. 
The kingdom that's full of single-mindedness. The kingdom where Moses is discarded. He is no longer necessary. The Bible says he has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I want to talk to you today about the two eyes that religion has put a veil over. One of those eyes is identity, and the other one is inheritance. Remove these two eyes from the new covenant of grace, and I'll introduce you to a man, whether saved or unsaved, that has a vision problem. I'll introduce you to a man that cannot see. The reason our streets are filled with violent rioters is because these men and women have never discovered that their identity and their inheritance can only be found in Christ. I mean, that's a simple statement, but it's a true statement. They are demanding that their identity be changed, their past erased, and their inheritance come by taking the law into their own hands rather than through the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ. In the process, they have hired Moses to build their house rather than relying on the grace of Jesus Christ to make them the house. Over the years, I have personally ministered to thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people, some from the pulpit, some from the podcast, some over the phone, some in person. I have ministered to people who were so close. I felt like they were so close to seeing the gospel of his dear son and the finished work of grace. But in the end, they refused to see because they could not let go of what they had learned from a child. I asked a man the other day, I said, if I had a $5 bill in one hand, a hundred in the other, which one would you take if I gave you an option? He said, well, I'm not really sure. I said, you must have misunderstood the question. I said, you got a $5 bill in one hand and a hundred in the other and you have a choice You'd have to be out of your cotton-picking mind to take the $5 bill. You don't understand value. And so, in ministering to people over the years, I've noticed sometimes, even within the church setting, they've gotten so close. It was right there. I could hear it in their words. You want to know what's in a man's heart? Listen to his words. It'll be the dead giveaway every time. Just listen to the words. The Bible says, for out of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart, the abundance of the heart. Just listen to the words for a few minutes. You'll know what's in their heart. They were so close, but they wouldn't let go of what they had learned from a child. You see, religion has twisted the scriptures to say the sacrifice of myself rather than the sacrifice of himself. And so we go about all the time wanting to do sacrifice, sacrifice all of our time, sacrifice all of our money, sacrifice all of everything we've got. Sacrifice, I'm not saying we don't do things for God, don't get me wrong, but not in an effort to earn identity, not in an effort to inherit. <laughs> our contribution doesn't count. We become who we are in Christ. In fact, the Bible says, as he is, so are we. 
We're made just like him. Remember in Genesis, it said that God said, let us make man in our own image. We're just like him. Remember, he lives on the inside of us. And he's been trying to speak this gospel of grace through us forever. But sometimes we don't want to let go of those indoctrinations that we learned as a child. They're stubborn. They're hard to give up. You ever remember when you were a kid in school, if the teacher didn't want something erased off the blackboard, she'd wet it first and then chalk it? It wasn't as easy to erase. Come on, Treva, you were a teacher. It was stubborn. You had to really put some elbow grease in there to get it off. And so what I'm saying is sometimes we hold on to things that we're so stubborn to let go of because why? Because we're afraid. We're afraid to give up what we already have because we feel like we might be moving backwards even though it looks like we're moving forward. Moonwalking, they call it. There ain't no moonwalking in Christ. If you moonwalk, he's moonwalking. Remember, if I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. He's always with us. Unwilling to let go of what they learned. And we're taught it's about the sacrifice of myself rather than the sacrifice of himself. Their unwillingness to let go of the indoctrination of the old covenant, Mosaic law, we call it the performance-based Christianity, incited a riot on the inside of their emotions and their feelings, and they prematurely disconnected themselves from the precious IV drip of the finished work of grace. Now, let me ask you a question. Did they leave God? No. Did God leave them? Impossible. But they did walk away from an opportunity to take a real rest. We sang about it this morning. My, my soul finds rest in you, my Jesus my hiding place amidst the storm. In pastures green, you lay me down. Amen. They missed the opportunity to take a real rest. I believe they did. You see, they had opportunity to hold a funeral for their past. <laughs> they had opportunity to silence the battlefield of guilt and shame and fear and condemnation. Those cannons, those rockets. Last night, we were trying to sleep when the neighbors around us were firing off fireworks till after midnight. Can you imagine that going on in the soul where you've got concussion bombs and fireworks and noise constantly? There are people who live like that, including the body of Christ. You say, Mark, there can't be anybody living like that. You haven't talked to enough people. You haven't asked the right questions. You haven't been listening to what's coming out of their mouth. I'm telling you, there's so many people live like that ain't funny. It's crazy. They had opportunity to unlock the shackles of slavery and servant-mindedness, but instead they laid their eyes on the table. They placed their eyes in a kingdom that cannot see daddy's grace. The end result, the gospel of grace was veiled in plain sight. So close! but yet so far away. So close, right there. Valerie and I have said over the years, when people have visited maybe the church or became friends of ours, when they go away from the church or just go away as a friend, 
I always think he was so close to getting this gospel of grace, but you prematurely said no thank you. And you lifted your trousers, your skirt, and you kind of did a little curtsy thing, and away you went. So close! It takes a while. It's not overnight. Michelle, is that true? Come on. So close! You know, we live in a place, and we've lived there for 20 years, and there's a little woods. I bet the woods is no wider than this room right here. It's just a few trees, but they're very thick together. You know, we lived there for years upon years upon years, and I had no idea on the other side of those few trees there was a quarry. I mean, 500 feet deep. So close, never even knew it. Until, I don't know how I found out about it one day. I might have been doing a Google search. And I looked at the, the, the eye from the sky. And I'm like, what in the world is that thing? Right there. A hundred yards from our home. So close, but so unaware. So close, but you could not see this gospel of grace. You say, Pastor Mark, can you explain to me how this happens? I sure can. I'm going to show you a sentence on the PowerPoint screen, and I would like anyone to tell me and hear what this says. Just keep looking at it. For those that are listening by podcast or will listen by podcast, you have no idea what the congregation is looking at. But if you can see what they're seeing, they're basically looking at a PowerPoint slide that appears to have this random string of letters with spaces between them. But they don't really spell anything. Any guesses as to what you're seeing? It's pretty tough, isn't it? It kind of looks like a spoonful of alphabet soup, doesn't it? Yeah. The reason you're having a hard time deciphering what this sentence is saying is because these letters do not spell a single English word. You see, let me tell you something. Maybe most of you will know this. If you've ever took typing, if you've ever taken uh, keyboarding, you understand there's something called home keys, right? <laughs> These are the keys you rest your little eight digits on. Those are your home keys. A, S, D, F, J, K, L, semicolon. There's your home keys. Everything moves up and down. Everything moves left and right from that. But your hands are always resting on what are called home keys. And before I type this sentence out, what I did is I lifted up my hands and I just moved them one key to the right and laid them back down. So now I'm going through the motions of what my brain is trying to write, and it's writing something. It's unintelligible. You can't tell what it says. Friends, had I never moved my hands, what you would be looking at there is what says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So close. Yet a million miles away when you look at it like that. And people sometimes, they get so close to this gospel. I'm passionate about this gospel of grace. I am. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The darkness that we are witnessing across our country is because the hearts of our children were not laid on the home keys. I'm talking about the home keys that instill right out of the gate, identity and inheritance. I'm talking about the home keys that introduce the truth that God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The home keys that impart the revelation that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That needs to be taught to a child. The home keys that imprint the message that the Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. What great home keys to be on. I'm talking about the home keys that taught me that the life which I now live in the flesh is not about the sacrifice of myself and it's not about the sacrifice of yourself and it's not about the sacrifice of ourselves. It's about the sacrifice of himself. That's what it's about. It's about his sacrifice. Quit trying to put the church to working so hard and not tell them about his loving grace and his sacrifice. Remember, one application of his blood takes care of the weeds forever in his heart. Jesus' motivation to lay down his life as the sacrifice of our sins, listen to me carefully, was pure love. His sacrifice was sufficient. We do not need to add Moses and we do not need to add our own works to his sacrifice, to his finished work in an effort to strengthen its effect. Oh, that was a mouthful, wasn't it? In other words, whatever you add to it, does it make it any stronger? As I've said before, on the right side of a decimal point, I don't care how many zeros you add, you don't change the amount. If you have 1.00, that's $1. If you add a million zeros, you still have $1. Come on, help me out. You're in the banking business, right? Am I right? So you can go through all this adding to stuff, but it doesn't change anything. We don't need to add to his finished work. Our salvation is secure, and our identity and inheritance are promised. If every person on the face of this God-given earth would quiet their hearts long enough to have an honest and an open and a thoughtful and a thorough conversation with the Scriptures, I'm talking about the Scriptures that detail the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, then along their journey, along their page-by-page -page journey, their hearts would be confronted with many truths. The first of these truths that they would have to wrestle with are these. Listen to me carefully now. If Jesus' crucifixion on the cross was his response to humanity's condition, then there must have been something fundamentally wrong with humanity's heart. Would you agree with that? If that was his response, then there's a big problem here somewhere. The other truth that we would encounter is that the motivation of the sacrifice of himself was his love for us. That was his motivation. Do those sound like reasonable statements? That there was something wrong with humanity's heart and the sacrifice of himself was precipitated by love. We see that truth ascending from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Look at these words. I like how he says, you see? <laughs> you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, let me stop here for just a second because that's the first sentence, but that's a mouthful, that's a heartful. In that first sentence, you see humanity's condition and Christ's response. 
We were powerless. We were ungodly. And what did Christ do? He died for us. Do you see that? We were powerless. We were ungodly. Christ died for us. We see our condition. We see his response. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Now watch his motivation. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a humbling scripture right there because you can't take any credit for it because he put us all in one big pot. We're all melded together. We are all a bunch of sinners at one time. But listen to me carefully. We are no longer sinners. We have a new identity. This is where it starts. If you keep calling yourself a sinner, you have not changed identities yet. I'm not saying you're not saved, but you have in your heart of hearts, you have not taken on the new identity because when you sin, it doesn't make you a sinner. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. Yes, you may have sinned, but you are the righteousness of God in Christ. We are not sinners. We are sons of God. You want to call yourself anything? Call yourself a sonner, not a sinner, okay? We don't have to demand our inheritance. Our inheritance was released when the testator of the last will and testament died for us, namely Christ. How many of you over the years have either heard this old adage or you've said it yourself? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. How many of you have heard that? How many of you have said that? If it ain't broke, and they even use that bad word, ain't. I mean, they don't even clean up the language if it isn't. No. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. In other words, another way to say that is you don't put stitches where there is no broken flesh, right? Does that make sense? And it would be absurd to have a heart transplant when you have a perfectly good working heart right? So something about mankind was broken, and it would take the broken body of Jesus Christ to take away our broken soul and spirit. And Valerie talked about that this morning when she did communion. But now you catch the flavor of Jesus's words, the words that he instituted in the upper room, the words he instituted when he gave them the Holy Communion. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What was Jesus saying to his disciples? He was declaring, even before the cross, that their identity and inheritance could only be found through the sacrifice of himself. It's not our blisters that earned us anything. It was his broken body that earned us everything. That's what he said. He's saying, listen, this is my body. It's for you. And I'm going to live in your body. It's for me. A marriage, a oneness, if you will, a cohesiveness. Friends, people don't lay down their lives except for a greater cause. I mean, I wouldn't lay down my life for a worm, and neither did Jesus. He saw something in us far beyond man's ability to see. What he saw was he saw his creation, the ones that were made in the image of himself. He also saw the condition that sin and religion and hurt and pain and disappointment 
had created on the inside of us. It had inflicted upon us. What was his response? He saw all of that. You know what his response was? He demonstrated his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. If Jesus died on the cross for our sins, then that tells me that there was no other way to redeem mankind because if there would have been some other way, Jesus would have found it. He's omniscient. Do you know what omniscient is? It means all-knowing. If there would have been another way, he would have found it. The truth be told, there was no backup plan. There was no egress window. There was no back door. There was no other builder. All the wood that was necessary was built into a cross and he would hang on that cross and he would say, this is my plan to redeem man. That's a lot of love. If a person would honestly and openly and thoughtfully and thoroughly search the scriptures, they would eventually be confronted with the truth that the plan of redemption that God created is greater than our ability to destroy. His plan of redemption, his plan of salvation is greater than your mastermind to destroy it. You ain't got a criminal mind like that. You got the mind of Christ. We see this truth in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 8 through 18. First he said, sacrifices and offerings. Burnt offerings and sin offerings, look what he says, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Isn't that amazing? He said, listen, this really wasn't your heart. These sacrifices, all these burnt offerings, he said, you didn't desire that, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. So the law commanded those, the law demanded those offerings, those sacrifices, and so that's why they did them. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, which he's talking about covenants now. He sets aside the first covenant to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices. Look at these words, which can never take away sins. Those sacrifices could not take away sins. They covered it. They might have cleaned up your conscience for a while, but they could not take away sins. Now do you see why John the Baptist's message was so radical when he saw Jesus come in and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That would have been a radical thing to say. But when this priest, talking about Jesus now, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. My favorite scripture of the whole Bible. I don't know. I just have a love affair with that scripture because I know how finished this work is. It says, for by one sacrifice, that's Jesus' sacrifice. That tells us he won't do it again. One time. And what has he done? He has made perfect 
Perfect means you cannot improve upon it. Perfect means no flaw. You can't add anything to perfect and make it better. Okay, otherwise it would be perfect in the first place. So by one sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. How long? Forever. Those. Not himself, those. He was already perfect. Those, you, me, us, we. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I love this, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Sacrifice for his sin and sacrifice for our sin. It is no longer necessary. We don't have to do any sacrificing to be forgiven. When he forgave us, he forgave us for our past sins, our present, and all of our future sins. When we mess up, we come to the Father and we just agree with him. Say, Daddy, that was not a Jesus moment, was it? That was flesh. That's all it was. That is not the real spirit man living on the inside of me because he doesn't act that way. There's nothing wrong with saying, Daddy, I'm sorry. Papa, I'm sorry for that. You know how clean you'll feel? And it's not about being forgiven because you've already been forgiven. But if there's this cleansing effect that you're no longer under condemnation. You're no longer under guilt. You're no, under, no longer under worrying about this thing. Why? Because by one sacrifice, he has already made perfect forever those who are being made holy. One sacrifice. In the verses I just read, I find identity and I find inheritance. I identify with the sacrifice of himself. Why? Because Galatians 2.20 says, I was sacrificed with him. I was crucified with Christ. So I can identify with that sacrifice. In the verses I just read, I identify with the truth that by the sacrifice of himself, I have been made holy. This is probably one of the areas that I think most people get their shirt button wrong on is they feel like you are the one who makes you holy. And I've seen that over the years. I've, I've heard it taught. And we need to turn that message off. What did it say? It says, by the one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. But before that, it said, by his body on the cross, we were made holy. So did he do it or did I do it? He did it. His body on the cross is what made me holy. Doesn't look like I'm always walking in holiness. Doesn't look like I'm always holy. But my performance doesn't undo his holiness. Remember, he's greater. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the law. He's greater than my performance. He's greater than my mistakes. I identify with the truth that by the sacrifice of himself, I have been made perfect forever. By the sacrifice of himself, I identify with his declaration that he remembers my sins and my lawless deeds no more. I identify with that truth. I have no problem telling anybody, listen, my sins and my lawless deeds, my father doesn't count against me because he says in his word that he remembers them no more. In the same scriptures, we find our inheritance. You see, through the sacrifice of himself, the testator, has died. Therefore, we can claim our inheritance right now. Our inheritance is not some future event. It's not the pearly gates of heaven. Yes, that will be awesome. Yes, that will be magnificent. But our inheritance is now. 
I think we see that in a radical message of the prodigal son when he said, Father, give me my inheritance. And what did the father do? Here you go. Son, you're acting a mess. Son, you're about to go off into some country and blow it on harlots. Son. Daddy, I want my inheritance. You got it. It's here. It's not in heaven. It's not just in the by and by. Our inheritance lives on the inside of us. We can claim our inheritance right now. Friends, I'm going to tell you something we have inherited right now. And it's the message I stand and preach from every pulpit. We have inherited the new covenant of grace. The covenant whereby the sacrifice of sin is no longer necessary. Why? Because his one sacrifice took care of everything. My closing scriptures are found in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 26. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called... Now, the reason I highlighted those words is because that speaks of identity. If I've called you, I've already qualified you. I've already equipped you. I've called you. I've identified with you. That we are called is our identity. Who called us? The Father called us. That those who are called may receive, look at those words, the promised eternal inheritance. Now! Not a future event. Now you see our identity and you find our inheritance right next to each other, right there in Hebrews chapter 9. And who's the mediator of this covenant? Christ. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant for those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died, it never takes effect while the one who made it is living. I'm going to tell you something. If I had a rich relative that died, and I knew for a fact that I was the sole heir of their fortune, I'd be foolish to go down to the attorney's office without a death certificate. He's not going to do anything for you without a death certificate. Are you kidding me? I can show him my ID. I can show him a copy of the will. Maybe my rich aunt gave me a copy of it. I don't know. I can show him all kinds of documents, but he's going to say, I need a certain document. I need to see the death certificate. And so that's what it's getting at. When it's talking about this, it says, it says it never takes effect while the one who made it is living. But when Christ died, that's when it took effect. That's when identity, that's when inheritance was released. The writer of Hebrews continues. He says this. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet, wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled 
with the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. Remember, all the exterior stuff, but that priest, all those high priests have passed away. He said, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. He says, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. Then look at this last verse here. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all at the end of that age to do away with sin. Look at those precious words. By the sacrifice of himself. That was the inspiration for this message. When I opened up Hebrews and I began to see identity come off the pages, when I began to see inheritance come off the pages, when I began to see by one sacrifice he made me holy, one sacrifice he made me perfect forever, it took away all the fight that was in me. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. The Father has given us two eyes. Identity and inheritance. These two eyes can never be gouged out, hammered out, cast out, or blotted out. The testator of the last will and testament has put identity and inheritance in force through his own death on the cross. In our Christian walk, there are going to be times when we color outside of the lines. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Occasions because of habit, when we color with the crayon of the old covenant, friends, our wrong choice of crayons never alters our promised eternal inheritance. Friends, it is during these times that we must remind ourselves that we were not made holy and perfect by our own sacrifice. We were made holy and perfect by the sacrifice of Himself. When we look into the eyes of amazing grace, we discover Jesus, the faithful Son over God's house, the one who holds identity and inheritance in his hands. I want to pause. I just want to pause for just a moment. And I want you to listen for his voice. Can you hear him? Can you hear him as he whispers the words into your heart? You are my house. One door is sufficient. Hear the words of the Lord. I have rescued you from the dominion of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of the Son my daddy loves. 
in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Friends, thine eye is single. Therefore, your whole body is full of light. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with Moses' hands. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest offers himself each year. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Daddy, I want to thank you for these wonderful truths. Oh, my Lord, let them just drip and saturate our hearts. Daddy, let our foundation come out of identity and inheritance. Not an identity, not an inheritance that we earned, but an identity and inheritance that was given to us because the testator of the will, namely Jesus Christ, has died. He has shed his blood once for all, Daddy. I want to thank you for that precious blood that uh, takes away my weeds, takes away my sin forever and ever and ever. So I want to thank you, Father, as we stand in agreement with the Hebrew writer that we have your last will and testament living on the inside of us, Jesus Christ. And I want to thank you, Father, that our performance can never alter any of these truths. I want to thank you, Father, that our names can never be blotted out, can never be hammered out, can never be wiped out, can never be removed. Because David said, if I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, he said, you are there. You're in eternal presence. And so thank you, Father, that you don't shun us. You don't turn your back on us. Because every single one of us in here at times has a bad thought. We say something we shouldn't have said. We did something we shouldn't have done. But I want to thank you, Father. All of our sin has been forgiven. You said our sins and our lawless deeds, you remember no more. How precious was that sacrifice? What sacrifice am I talking about? Not my sacrifice. Not your sacrifice. But the sacrifice of himself. In Jesus' name, amen.